But today we are going to continue the sermon that I just got started on last week, and uh, it is on the book of Malachi, and we were looking at this prophet whose name means my messenger. That's what the word Malachi means, and he is the one who speaks on behalf of God to the people of God as they have returned from captivity after 70 years in captivity. They now have rebuilt the temple. This is a hundred about 100 years after the completion of that and their return. But things are not good in Israel. In fact, we're going to find a lot of similar things that had happened that led them into captivity are still among them. And things are not well. And there is, uh, there's just uh, people that are disillusioned. There are doubts. Uh, there is cynicism. There is disappointment that they, they have with their God. They're failing to thrive spiritually. And uh, Malachi has been sent by God, and he is what I've entitled God's Disputer. And uh, what we find in the book of Malachi, that God disputes with his people through his prophet and confronts them about six things. And we only got through two of these last week. And the first was this. The first dispute was that they questioned God's love. As they looked at themselves, they questioned God's love, how have you loved us? And uh, we saw that God responds to this. They were very cynical about this. And we as Christians, as we look at these disputes that God will have with Israel, I think that we can find ourselves here on these pages. These sometimes will describe our own hearts as we go maybe through some hardships and some difficulties that we can also have these same attitudes, and sometimes we can wonder about God's love. But we are reminded that God has loved us. If we are a believer, if we are in Christ, he has loved us with a magnanimous love. And uh, we ought to keep that ever before our minds, the immensity of God's love for us, that he has loved us with an everlasting love before the world ever began. The second dispute is that they were profaning God's worship. And this is dealt with in chapter, the end of chapter 1 and into chapter 2. Um, both priest and people, as they were worshiping in the temple, were bringing sacrifices that were inappropriate. God had told them they were to bring sacrifices without blemish. But they are bringing the lame and the sick to offer up to their God. And this is a reproach to him. And again, they miss seeing the greatness of their God. We see in chapter 1, verse 14, the end of that verse says, For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. But they were not fearing him. They were not worshiping him as they ought. And they were bringing these sacrifices that belittled God, that were an abomination to him. And again, we can find ourselves that way, can't we? Though God has dealt with us graciously, kindly in Jesus Christ, we can sometimes find our hearts cold toward him. Our worship is anything but enthusiastic. Our heart is, is, is not in tune with singing the praises of God and worshiping him. And it can become perfunctory. And we can be like the Israelites of old where they 
worship the Lord with their lips. They give him lip service, but the hearts are far from him. And so we are mindful that as believers, God has been great, uh, kind to us, and he is worthy of worship and uh, the whole of our life, to love God with our, all our heart, soul, and strength. And uh, so Malachi maybe is a wake-up call for us in these two areas. The third one that we pick up on is in verse chapter 2 and verses 10 through 16. We didn't get to this last week, but it has to do with the ordinance of marriage. They were trampling on this very special gift that God has given to his creation, and it is the gift of marriage. Verse 10 says, Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? In other words, we are one family. God has dealt with us as a nation, and he has been kind and gracious to us, and and we are, as it were, a family. And yet, he says, you have been faithless, profaning the covenant of our fathers. And then, as is typical, the question is, well, how have we done this? Uh, how have we profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves? And, has, uh, and, and God says to them, the way you profane it is what you're doing in your marriages. And there are two ways in which he deals with this. First of all, it has to do with the choice of some of their marriage partners. God had ordained marriage. It was his good gift. And for Israel, it was to be only carried out with someone who was of their own faith. They were not to marry someone who was outside of the faith of Israel. But this is what they were doing. We read in Deuteronomy 7, this is when they were entering into the promised land. The Lord said, you shall make no covenant with them, with the Canaanites. You shall not give your daughter to their son, nor take their daughter for your son, for they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. And so the anger of the Lord will be aroused against you. And so it is here. This is what they've done. They've returned back into the land. And uh, for many of them, they have married among the pagans that live yet in the land as they have returned there. may have been for various different reasons. It may have been just an attraction to them. Or it may also have been that they saw some economic advantage, that they could, what we might say, marry up. And uh, they would be in a good place by marrying this person, that their family was well-established, and it would bring advantages to them that they maybe otherwise would not have. But this would bring a great sacrifice. It would bring a compromise in the marriage relationship. The two would not go together. And uh, it would have an effect upon the family, upon the children. And so the Lord speaks very harshly about this. This is an abomination, the Lord says. It is an abomination to him. And so here is the call that um, they need to guard their marriage relationships. And they have been sinning in this way. And their gifts have not been accepted by the Lord. They come to the altar, and he does not receive them. And so they have, again, married foreign daughters and sons. 
And this is a warning to us, isn't it? To, to guard our hearts. When our hearts are spiritually wandering, we make poor choices, don't we? And so God was warning here. And, and Paul does the same thing in the New Testament. He writes to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 6.14, and he says, Don't be unequally yoked. If you belong to Christ, if you are his, you are to marry only in the Lord. Because there will be this disruption. What fellowship does light have with darkness? And, and people that have done that, they find very soon that what they thought was going to be bliss, <laughs> there becomes tension, there's differences, there's hardships, and two people going in two different directions. And so Paul warns here, don't be unequally yoked. Now, thankfully, God forgives us when we sin. Um, we're still married. If that be the case, it is a marriage that is recognized, but it is something that God warns against for believers. The second thing here is not only did some of them make the choice of a wrong marriage partner, but secondly, we see that they change marriage partners. We see this in verses 13 through 15. And verse 13, it says, the second thing that you do is you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning because he, ha- he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? And here's the answer, because the Lord has witnessed between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. So here is a couple that have been married and the man is divorcing his wife. She is She's been the wife of your youth. So it suggests to us that they're now down the road a ways. And now he has decided he's going to find another wife. For whatever reason, he is displeased. He's going to divorce her. He's going to put her away. And he will seek after someone else. And here we see very beautifully what the Lord describes marriage to be. You have left the wife your companion, and your wife by covenant. What we find in marriage is, as it is designed by God, it is a a covenant of companionship where a man and a woman, they are married together and they become as one flesh. It's this idea of companionship. It is a wonderful design, a beautiful thing that God has designed for his creation for the two to become as one, to become companions. But it is also a covenant. And that's what takes place when there is a wedding. We take vows before God, before others. And and we say something like this, you know, for better, for worse, in sickness. Um, I forget how it all goes, but, you know, the vows. But there are vows that are being made. A covenant is being established. And we read that this covenant is made before God himself. Proverbs 2.17 talks about the adulterous woman who had left her companion of her youth and ignored the covenant that she had made before God. A covenant that was made before God. 
And here in this situation, they are breaking these covenants. And again, we learn, don't we, that when our heart is far from the Lord and our heart becomes cold, we, we hurt other people who are often the closest to us. And we all know, I think, stories, and maybe you've experienced that, of, uh, of the brokenness and the hurt that comes from this. That the, the one that is nearest to me, that should be my companion, brings hurt and hardship and difficulty. And what God intends is for there to be the context here of, of marrying and having children um, and raising up a godly offspring. Verse 15, did he not make them one with a portion of the spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. And here's the warning. So guard yourselves in your spirit. Let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. And then again at the end of verse 16. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. What is God looking for? A husband and wife that know God and love one another. And they are seeking to train up godly children, offspring. And so he's looking for this multi-generational people devoted to him and to him alone. And the context of the home is where that is ideally to take place. Two that love one another and are seeking to raise up their children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And again, here's a warning to us to guard our marriages. Hebrews 13 says, let marriage be held in honor among all. Let it be esteemed. Let it be appreciated and very carefully guard it. Guard the sanctity of this covenant that God himself has established. And so here he says twice, guard yourself. Proverbs 4.23 says, keep watch over your heart for out of it flow the very issues of life. So here's a reminder to us today to guard that covenant, to guard carefully this relationship in our marriage. Now, as we think about this, God is one who, who, who is against divorce. He mentions that. Um, he, he is forgiving, though. This is not an unpardonable sin. When it does take place, there is yet forgiveness that is found in Jesus Christ, and we are thankful for that. There is forgiveness that is found at Calvary. But here, for those that are married, to guard carefully their wedding vows. The fourth dispute is, you weary God with your words. We see this beginning in chapter 2 at verse 17, and it goes through chapter 3, verse 5. Notice verse 17. You have wearied the Lord with your words. You've wearied the Lord. That's an interesting statement, isn't it? Do you ever get wearied by some people with their many words? complaining often, murmuring, and just it seems like it's nonstop. And you just become weary sometimes. Maybe your children are that way, complaining, grumbling. And we can become weary with people and their words. And here it's used of God. You have wearied God with your words. Amazing. With your words. But you say, how have we wearied him? 
here's the answer by saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? This is dripping with uh, cynicism. Where's God? I mean, look at us. We're trying to, you know, do what we're supposed to do, and we're going to the temple, we're doing all these different things. But look at the ungodly. It seems like God's, in, God's okay with them. Uh, their life is going well. And uh, where's the God of justice? Why doesn't God do something? And so here are these complaints, this grumbling, this cynicism about their God. Evildoers seem to be prospering, and God doesn't do a thing. He doesn't pay, it doesn't pay to serve God, in other words, is something of what they are saying. Here we are trying to serve God, and and look at us, and things are not going well with us. Notice chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, similar words. It says, you have said, it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking uh, or, or walking in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. It almost seems that it pays to live ungodly lives. And as I read these verses, I think of Psalm 73, the Asaph syndrome. We're going to look at this tonight. But here is Asaph. He says, surely God is good to Israel. He begins with what he knows is true. Surely God is good to his people, to those who walk blamelessly before him. But my feet almost slipped because I began to just look at life from street level. I lost perspective of who God is and I was just looking at street level, and I became envious of the wicked. Because as I look at their life, they have no concern for God, no concern for holiness. And I'm trying to live a holy life, and my life, I got all kinds of problems. But their life seems to be easy. They're healthy. They're prosperous. They're not living for the Lord, but it seems that God is abundantly blessing them. And woe is me, it's almost as if I have cleansed my hands in vain. It doesn't pay to serve the Lord. And he was wise enough to not utter these words, but these were his private thoughts. And I wonder if we do not have those thoughts at times. We're coming to church to serve the Lord, and we see our neighbor pull out with a big boat behind his car going to the lake. We're coming to the worship the Lord on the Lord's day and they've got this big nice boat and they don't seem to have any problems or any difficulties in their life and my life is I've got a lot of issues and a lot of problems and a lot of struggles and sometimes we might think it doesn't pay to serve the Lord and so these are the words that they are thinking and speaking even boldly very arrogantly against the Lord But Asaph will learn, even as we learn in Malachi, that there is a day of reckoning. There is a day of judgment that is going to come. 
when God will vindicate himself and he will vindicate his people. And so um, Malachi comes, or Asaph comes to realize that I saw their end. They're not in a good place. Just because you have a good inning in baseball doesn't mean you're going to win the game. You may have a great inning, but it doesn't mean you're going to end the, win the game. And so it is. There is a day of accounting, a day of judgment that is going to come. And Asaph came to realize that they are not in an enviable position at all. And so as believers, we need to see this as well. We need to see and have a biblical worldview to see the big picture as believers. And so here where they, they, this dispute is against their words against God. But the fifth dispute is you are robbing God. We see this in chapter 3. Carl read for us here, verses 6 to 12. But before he gets to that, we read in verse 6 this statement. It's interesting, right in the middle of the book of Malachi, we have this statement about God, about a truth, an attribute about our God. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, you are not consumed. Here, Malachi inserts this vitally important truth about our God that we need to hold on to. It is a truth that is referred to sometimes as the immutability of God, or in other words, the unchangeableness of God, that God does not change. Wayne Grudem defines this as God is unchanging in his being, his perfections, his purposes, and his promises. Psalm 102 says, In the beginning you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like like clothing. You will change them, and they will be discarded. But you remain the same, and your years will never end. Hebrews 13.8, it said of Jesus Christ, he is the same, what? Yesterday, today, and forever. God does not change. His perfections, his purposes, his promises, they do not change. But sometimes, again, the people of God can think, Well, it appears that he has changed. And this is the way I think some of these people were thinking in the days of Malachi, that God has changed. And Malachi is saying, no, he has not changed. In other words, if he did change, uh, you wouldn't be. God is keeping his promises. This is why you are not consumed. God has made promises to Abraham, and, and he's going to fulfill those promises. Otherwise, you would have been consumed. God has dealt graciously and patiently. He has been long-suffering toward you, and he he has not changed, even though they have lost sight of this. And again, this is something that can happen to us. We think that in some ways, maybe we wouldn't express them, but it seems like God has changed. I remember my mother-in-law used to visit her when she was in 
in the nursing home, and she would talk about all the changes, you know, in her life, this stage of her life. And she would always say, the only thing that doesn't change is change itself. It's one thing you can be guaranteed, that there will be change. And I said, no, there's one other, one other area where there is no change, and that is with God. God does not change. And we need to understand that as believers. Abide with me, fast falls the eventide. The darkness deepens, Lord, with me abide. When other helpers fail and comforts flee, help of the helpless, oh, abide with me. Swift to its close ebbs out little life's little day. Earth's joy grow dim, its glories pass away. Change and decay in all around I see. O thou who changest not, abide with me. Thank God that he is unchanging. and We can trust him. He's not going to be different tomorrow than what he is today. His promises that were made yesterday, they are still true for us today. But here's this cynical response from the people from verse 7. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from the statutes and you have not kept them. And here's the call, return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Well, what way do we need to return to you? Well, I could list a long list, but here is one of them, verse 8. Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? And the response is, in your ties." And in your contributions. So God here disputes with them about, again, what they have entered into covenant with God. And this was one of the things that they were called to do. They were to offer up their tithes, their offerings to the Lord. Now, a tithe is a tenth. And a tenth of their income from their flocks, from their labors, from their fields was a tenth was to be given to the Lord and it was to be used for the care of those who worked in the temple, for the priest. Deuteronomy 18.21 says, Behold, I have given the children of Levi all the tithes in Israel as an inheritance in return for the work which they performed, the work of the tabernacle of meeting. The priests did not have an inheritance. They did not have land. They did not farm. They ministered in the temple. And the way in which they were supported was by the tithe that was given from the others. This tithe was to be given to support the priests and their families. And it was to be given in order to sustain the ministry, the ongoing ministry of the temple. They also were supported by the offerings, many of the sacrifices. The priests were able to take a portion of that for themselves, and so it was food for them. Another part of this tithe was to be used for the poor in the community, for those who were the most vulnerable in Israel. So widows and orphans that were in need would be supported by this tithe as well. This was not a voluntary tithe. This was something that God, as he had entered into covenant with them at Mount Sinai, said, this is, this is required of you. 
that this tithe be given for the support of these things. But they were not giving the tithe. They were, he says, robbing God. Isn't that an amazing statement? Robbing God with not giving the tithe as he had commanded them to do. You know, what we do with our money tells a lot about us, doesn't it? It tells us what we value, what is important to us. Jesus said, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Your treasure and what you are investing in and what you use your money for, it is telling something about what is valuable to you. And for them at this time, it was not important. This was not important to use their money. They were using it for themselves rather than for the work of the Lord. And God says, you're you're under a curse. In Deuteronomy 28 and 29, God said, I will curse your fields. If if you are disobedient, I will bring curses upon you. it It will affect your fields, your crops. They will not yield as if you obey me, I'll bless you. And therefore, there is this call to return to him. And in verse 10, he says, Bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test. Says the Lord of hosts, If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. Trust me. Give and I will provide. I will bless you. And so here is this rebuke, this dispute with them about their money. They, are, they have been lax. They have not been careful to do what God had commanded them to do. So what happens when we get in a place that is not good spiritually? When we're not growing in grace, well, we become self-centered. We squander our time and our money for ourselves We lose sight of spiritual principles and priorities. We lose sight of the kingdom work. And here God is, they are saying God's not taking care of us, and so we have to take care of ourselves. And so he disputes with them about the tithe. Now as we get to the New Testament, Paul gives instruction to the Corinthians about giving And he says we are to give proportionately. We are to give as God has blessed us. We are to give. We are to give sacrificially. We are to give systematically. It's to be uh, the first of our giving is to the Lord. And, And we are to honor him with our gifts. Now, we don't have a temple. We do have a structure. We do have a building. We do have things to take care of in that way. And... More importantly, there is kingdom work. There is the spread of the gospel that we are to support and we are to see the building up of the church and the promotion of missions and the church. Let me read this this comment uh, in one commentary. It says, the main point of the text is that our giving is a window into how we view God. If we see God as the gracious giver of good gifts, then we will desire to excel in the grace of giving so that others, too, can become worshipers of this great God. If, on the other hand, we view him as a hard taskmaster who isn't fair and just and whose service is a great weariness to us, 
then we will become visible, then this will become visible in our reluctant giving. The question is attitude, not amount. Or as one other commentator said, he's, as God talks about the purpose in giving, it's not because God is wanting to get money out of your pocket. He's wanting to get idols out of your heart because we have failed to love God as we ought. God has been gracious to us if we are a believer. He has poured out his goodness and grace upon us in abundance. And we ought to be learning the grace of giving. And I'm thankful for a church that does that. I'm not reprimanding you in any way today. I'm so thankful for a church that has a giving heart. And we are able to support the cause of missions. 40%, almost 40% of our budget goes to, to missions. And I'm so thankful that we're able to do that. What a great blessing. But where our treasure is, that's where our heart's going to be. And where our heart is, that's where our treasure is going to be as well. And so here was a call by Malachi in this particular area. The sixth dispute was, we've already looked at it, they were speaking arrogantly against God. Very harsh, hard words against God. As we, as we think of this book of Malachi, as we close, we see there is a promise of grace and of hope for a repentant people. Return to me, the Lord says there in verse 7. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. I will bless you. Return to me. And this is what God calls his people to. When we have erred, when we have gotten far away from God, there's the call. Come, return to me, and I will return to you, and I will bless you. And we read in verse 16 of chapter 3. This is an interesting portion of this book. Then those who feared the Lord. There was a remnant among these people who feared the Lord. They received the word of Malachi. They heard and they have a heart to respond. Those who feared the Lord, they spoke with one another. And the Lord paid attention and he heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They will be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession and I will spare them as a man spares his son and serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. There are two companies within Israel. There are those that are bitter and cynical, disappointed with God, speak against God, who really show themselves to not be believers. But there are those whose hearts are tender and responsive to the word of God. And what are they doing? But they are speaking to one another. They are teaching one another, speaking to one another, encouraging one another with their words. Let us follow the Lord. Yeah, there are some dark things, but let us be faithful to the Lord. They have a heart to hear. And he says there's a book of remembrance that is written. Hebrews 6.10 says, For God is not unjust to forget your work and your labor of love, which you have shown toward his name 
in that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. Psalm 50, verse 8, you have kept uh, count of my tossings and you have put my tears in your bottle. Are they not all in your book? The Lord sees his people. He knows them. He sees their struggles. He sees their tears. And he remembers as they seek to serve him, sometimes in hard and difficult places, he writes a book of remembrance. This is not a stick-it, post-it note for God's sake. He doesn't need to be reminded. It's for our encouragement that God remembers his people as they seek to be faithful to him and to follow him. He remembers them. The terms that he uses, they shall be mine, my treasured possession. And the book of Malachi is going to speak about the final day of judgment. And God owns them as his. They will be mine. The wicked are not to be envied. And so here is this wonderful truth that those who know him, that a book of remembrance is being written. God knows and sees, and he takes account as they trust him, as they fight for faith. Early on when Faith Liebing was going through uh, the difficulties with her pregnancy, and as I was texting with her, she shared, she shared and said, this is Jake and I's motto as they've gone through this difficult pregnancy. And it was these words that we sang this morning. Whatever God ordains is right. Isn't that an amazing statement? And as believers, we can say that. Whatever God ordains for me is right. He's good. He's wise. And I can trust him. It's an amazing thing, isn't it, to be able to know that and to believe that, to embrace that. Whatever God ordains for me, for his people, it's right, and I trust him. God, give us the grace that we may so live. And we're thankful for those among us who've displayed that, who've shown that to us. And by their life, they have spoken this truth to us. God is worthy. He is worthy. And may he make us to be such worry, uh, faithful uh, followers of him. As I said, I would like us to, again, take the insert, if you would. And we're going to sing this as we close today. Just the last two verses, again, to be familiar with this wonderful hymn. Wonderful truth. Whatever God ordains, it is right, and we can trust him. Let's stand together as we sing.
God enable us to sing that from our heart. Tonight we will be looking further at Psalm 73. I hope you will join us and Jackie will be giving us an update on her ministry as she was in Central Asia. If you pray with me. Lord, we thank you today that you are our God and that you do not change. We thank you that you have loved us with an everlasting love. You who began the good work in us, you will continue it into the day of Jesus Christ. Lord, we have every reason to take hope, to be encouraged. Help us that we would be found faithful to you. For anyone here that is outside of Christ, it is our prayer that you by your spirit would draw them savingly to Jesus Christ, that they may call upon him as their own Lord and Savior, and that they might serve him all the days of their life. Take your word, bless it to our hearts, we pray. To the glory of Christ, we pray. And now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forevermore. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. May the Lord bless you. You are dismissed. Amen.